You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 110. And uh, this is going to be a very plant-focused episode, although we do have all different topics we're going to talk about. I was going to say, like, but, we're uh, going to strictly... one of my complaints is we always don't talk about native plants enough, and this one is all about a native plant, but also into some of the complexities of uh, that go behind conserving and preserving native plants. You know, what I what I love about this and what we're going to talk about is that it's more than just about a plant. It's to me, it, it ties in everything. Um, mm-hmm. And I love the story. The one thing that we've always talked about is if 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 you want to get someone interested, you have to have a story. And this is one of the more compelling stories that I've heard. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so interesting to me, and I, I know the same for you. And I'm 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 assuming that that a lot of our listeners already know have heard the story, and if not, we're happy to introduce it to you so you can go learn more mm-hmm. about it. So yeah. So with that, I want to introduce uh, Perry Sasnet. Uh, did I say that right? Okay, yes. I'm terrible uh, <laughs> at pronouncing last name stuff. So. I'm going to start keeping a ticker of like yeah, I, I um, want you to start how saying. How actually get right? Tom will defer <laughs> a lot and just say, "Go ahead and introduce yourself." Yeah. But we're going to start like a right or wrong. <laughs> well, with that, I'm actually going to let you go and introduce yourself because uh, you have a pretty interesting story here yourself. Sure. Um, hi there. I'm Perry Sassnet. I work at Glacier National Park and I do media and science communication. And I'm one of the producers of the Headwaters podcast. That and and you're by trade, you're a geologist. Yes, I started out as a geologist, did my undergrad and my master's in geology, and then kind of shifted more into the science communication world. Awesome. Well, we're we're very excited to to have you on. This is, you know, Tom and I are are both podcast freaks, so. Um, <laughs> so it, we consumed your podcast very quickly, season two. Um, two days. Very nice to hear. I, I went through it really fast. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it was probably like a day and a half yeah. for me. So it's uh, we we consumed it very quickly, and we purposefully didn't talk about it with each other mm-hmm. much, so that we could have the conversation with you because we had we were so excited about it. So we're we're so thankful that you can join us today. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. So we wanted to start off before we even get into that. I think we we really want to say thank you for the work that you do and and kind of just acknowledge the national park system and how important um, it is to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Um, <laughs> so we we just really enjoyed it. We wanted to say thank you and and in your words, we kind of wanted to hear what the national park surface means to you as an employee. What you know. It's obviously there were steps for you to get there, but now that you work there and you're involved in this, what, what does it mean to you? Hmm. I mean, I think if you asked a hundred employees that, or just a hundred people, you'd probably get a hundred different answers. Yeah. I think, I guess to me, there's the ecological importance and then there's the social importance. I think 
the ecological side of things, one of the things that really came home to me during this White Bark Pine project, during the podcast producing season two, was just how much national parks are part of a bigger picture. It's easy to think of national parks as like, that's nature. And and they are, and they're really important for, you know, preserving wild places and wildlife habitat. But for season two, you know, as part of the White Bark Pine story, we were in the park, we were outside the park, we were on forest service land, we were on tribal land, driving across private land, state land. So it's just, Glacier's a million acres, but it's part of the crown of the continent ecosystem, which is millions and millions of acres, 18 million maybe, um, give or take. <laughs> but <laughs> so that's, you know, there's so much that's that we value about parks that go beyond the borders of a national park. Whether that's bird species that migrate. And I was going to say, you think about the National Park Service and you think about physical tracts of land, but what inspired you guys to make a podcast? And and how does that impact the the park? Yeah, well, one of the reasons we wanted to try out a podcast is just there's only so many people who can visit a national park. We get about 3 million visitors a year, which is a lot. And those are people that we have the chance to contact in person. You know, there's park rangers wandering around. They can attend a ranger program, that kind of thing. But there are also a lot of people that won't come to Glacier this year, may never come to Glacier, but that might be interested in these stories or be able to learn from these stories. And, there's also, you know, a subset of people that are visiting the park and maybe they need a podcast to listen to mm-hmm. as they drive around on these long drives around the park. So I think it was just a way for us to be able to reach more people. And kind of the cool thing about a podcast is that you have people's ear for a long time. I do a lot of other media production too. I do a lot of videos and most of our videos are 10 minutes or less, which is, you know, great for what we're trying to accomplish there. But to be able to be in someone's ear for hours is incredible. And you can tell a more in-depth story and have kind of more nuanced conversation, more nuanced conversations than you really can in a short video. Mm -hmm. Well, it it makes it a little more personal too, because I, I, I don't want to speak for Tom, but after having listened, I kind of feel I already know you, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, you, you get that familiarity and, and, you're you're comfortable and and when you know someone you're more apt to trust them or or just be believable. Yeah, yeah it's funny you mentioned that, Frank, because I was thinking the same thing. And on uh, my wife and I, our bucket list is to visit a lot of our national parks out west. And I'm like, oh yeah, when we go out there, I should I should reach out to Perry and see if we can hang out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Please do. <laughs> wow. We'd love to hang out. Yeah. But what? But yeah, I- it is kind of a more intimate. Yeah experience in a way you know the park ranger in uniform giving a ranger talk can often be sort of a a position of authority and sort of a podcaster in your ear and I'm sort of going on my own emotional journey and the story and stuff and so I think it's more yeah you kind of get to come along on that as a friend yeah we we got to experience that with you and and I love that some of the recordings where it was more that we were getting to kind of like listen in on a conversation you were having with someone else because we get to to see you discover things or the emotions and and we'll talk about that a little bit more too because i have questions involving that and we do want to get into some of the the meat and potatoes of your podcast and some of the really interesting 
conversations that you had. Yeah. So for anyone who's interested in listening to the Headwaters podcast, this is probably a good place to pause. Yeah. Take a, go a listen. two and a half hour break or three hour break. Go listen to that. And then you can come back and, and listen to the rest of this. One, one of the things that you said that, that I loved, it's, it's that, that you did go beyond the borders of the park. And what made me appreciate it even more, Tom and I are working on a, on a talk that we're giving this fall. And we're going back and re-listening to some of the, our old episodes for some information and quotes. And I was listening to a conversation we had with Dr. Enrique Sala from National Geographic, and it, it, hit, it didn't hit me at the time, but it hit me now when he was saying that the pandemic really made him realize it was a, a strong siren kind of signaling to him that we're all in this together. And it doesn't, it doesn't just matter what happens in our yard or our country. It, it involves everyone, and we need to do mm-hmm. this together. And it, it kind of hit me. As we were preparing for this as well and, and looking about everything involved, and, and one of the things that hit me first off in episode one was that you, you talk about trees in the form of a relationship, not as you know a living thing, but you, you talk about it more as a spiritual uh, being. And um, we were curious, did, did you have that connection before the making of this podcast – um, a, a, a spiritual connection with plants around you, or is that something that kind of you, you started to become more aware of as as you you delved into this? I would say yes and no. I I've kind of become more and more of a naturalist over time, especially working for the Park Service and learning from all these people around me. You know, I started as a geologist, so I would have said I was not interested in alive things. Yeah. <laughs> just the rocks. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, over the last nine years, I've learned about wildflowers and fire ecology and wildlife and birds. I got really into birding during COVID. And I think it's been kind of a gradual process, but certainly this project in particular and the people that we talked to, especially Sheena Shapit, who we visited Alauya, the great grandparent tree with in episode one. And, you know, reading stuff like writing Sweetgrass, I think it really, like something that Sheena Shah said was, we take care of plants because they take care of us. And it was like, of course they do. Like, I had never thought about it in that way, but like, they feed us, they clothe us, they house us. We literally could not live without plants. And so, of course, we should take care of them because they take care of us. And so kind of looking at things in that reciprocal way was just, yeah, was kind of a total reframing of how I thought about nature. You know, as an academic perspective, you you learn about nature, you study nature. I talked about that kind of a bit on the podcast and how it was different to think of myself as part of nature and part of this world and connected to all these things and relying on the natural world, not just sort of appreciating it or observing it. No, I think it's it's somewhat human nature to, you know, I think most people before they start this journey kind of feel as though nature serves them. And then mm-hmm. over, throughout your journey, you realize not only am I just part of nature, I'm not, maybe I'm not even that big of a part <laughs> of this. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very humbling to step back and, and, you know, take the ego out of it and say, I'm part of this community. And, Very much so, and, and it's it's a hard thing to do, and it's um, 
we whenever we we've talked about this before whenever i have a friend that will i try not to convert everyone to native plants but when someone shows <laughs> an interest the first thing i do is send them a copy of breeding sweetgrass and i'm like mm-hmm. if you're interested i i really think this is where your journey should start and it's become a more important part of this for me than that and and i agree with you like before having that conversation or reading that book like you read it and you're like oh yeah why didn't I ever, <laughs> of course, yeah. Why? Why wasn't I doing this? Yeah, it's not necessarily the canon that we grew up with, kind of the mode of thought that we're surrounded by. But once you read that or come across those ideas, it's like, of course, of course, that it, makes sense. Exactly, and it it does become culture. And I guess that leads us into our our next question: Is well, I I'm sorry, want to take a quick step back because yeah. okay. the, the podcast is about the white bark pine, which we've mentioned a couple times but for those who haven't seen picture look up a picture but can you describe what is a white bark pine sure so white bark pine live at the very upper edges of where trees grow in glacier national park and throughout the rockies and even in the sierras and they they're not the biggest trees they're not the tallest trees there are no redwoods or sequoias but they I think they're quite picturesque. There's, they have this white kind of silvery bark and up at Treeline here in Glacier, a lot of the trees are these little Christmas tree shapes, kind of triangle, triangle, triangle. The white bark pine is like big and bushy and its branches kind of reach up like arms reaching towards the sky. And so you can spot them from a mile away and they are, I think they're very charismatic trees. Mm -hmm. Of course, a lot of the ones in Glacier are dead. So they're these silver skeletons and they, for some reason, they sort of grow in this twisted pattern. So the skeletons are these twisted spiraling trunks with these kind of curly branches reaching out. So they're very, very charismatic, very noticeable in life or death. Which, which kind of, I can infer why people would be interested in them because they're, well, <clears throat> here on the East Coast, we have sycamores which are very visible, especially in the winter because of that white bark. So I'm assuming, although they're up at the, near the tree line, so that limits how many people are going to see them as well. But I could see yeah, like there's some... Yeah, kind of a contrast. Yeah, there's some um, mystique to them in that way that not... They're very visible when you're there, but not everyone gets to see them because it's difficult to get there. So. Definitely, yeah. And so that was one of the sort of tensions of the podcast and the story is like, this tree is incredibly important. It's very charismatic, but it's all the way up a tree line. So your average visitor to the park, driving around on the roads, hiking in the valleys, visiting the lakes, isn't going to see them and probably won't have heard of them. Because, I mean, people, aside from, you know, redwoods, sequoias, that kind of thing, we don't necessarily pay that much attention to trees unless we're really trying to. <laughs> One of our, um, Don LaFleur, who heads up our, plant program here calls them calls it the green fog mm-hmm. it's just like there's trees everywhere visitors to glacier probably see thousands of trees maybe more on a visit here but how many people really think about the trees or look closely at them it's probably not that many so yeah knowing that you can see how why it would be so culturally important because there's a limited palette of people who've been able to encounter them um, and involved with that's them. how you segue into your question. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that was a much better segue. 
you should do that more often for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you mentioned in the podcast it's not always about restoration or ecology but culture um, as we were just talking about. So and, – and it, there's a story attached with this for part of the culture, and, and it seemed as as you were interviewing people, some of that story was getting lost and culture was getting lost. And, and as this tree starts to decline for, for the reasons that we'll discuss in a little bit, do you feel that we've, we've been losing culture um, as we start to lose this species? Yeah, definitely. That year weren't a huge part of my culture. I wouldn't say that they're a big part of, you know, our culture. But for Shinsha, that's very different. You know, she talked about as you lose a species, you lose the stories that go with that species. As White Park Pine declines, you lose the stories that go with White Park Pine. As Clark's Nutcracker declines with White Park Pine, you lose those stories too. And I think one of the species that we talked about in the podcast as well that is perhaps more recognizable that more people may have heard of is the American chestnut. Mm-hmm. And that's something that when Michael talked about that story in our season, he said the chestnut was a cradle to grave tree. You know, people yeah. literally made their cradles and made their coffins out of it, their homes. It's very rot resistant. It was fast growing. It was everywhere. So the wood literally built the objects of people's lives, the nuts fed them, the economy of collecting the chestnuts and selling them supported them. They stuffed their mattresses with the leaves. And so when that was lost, that was not only the loss of those physical things, but also that culture and those economies and that cultural memory. And like people have heard of the American chestnut, but it's not really very much part of our culture anymore. No, and it, even even when you think of like where we're located, the forests were mainly American chestnuts, um, mm-hmm. and and that has gone. So when you think of the mass that it produced and the wildlife that it supported, and and all the ways that we used it, it's just. But it's long enough. It's not that far ago, but it's it's long enough that we don't remember it. It wasn't within my lifetime. You know, it was right. It's only a few generations ago, but it's. Yeah, that's all it takes, really. And we, you know, it's it's even funny. We had on as a guest Sam Thayer, uh, who is a foraging expert, and he was uh, talking to us about uh, hickory oil, and that he had trouble researching it because the the story of it and the culture of it was lost. Like he he could see that where the Native Americans traded it uh, in the 1700s, and then it disappeared. And it's that that culture was completely lost. And he goes, and now that I'm I'm making it, he's like, wow, like this, like how did how did this get lost? It's the olive of of America, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's just not getting used. And it's it, it I I feel that as time progresses, we're losing more and more of that. And it's important to bring these stories to light so that we can capture some of this. And I thought the the way that you started this was really fitting. Yeah. Yeah, we were excited to be able to tell that chestnut story too and try to keep that cultural memory alive. And I hope that the restoration effort is successful. We would love to see chestnuts in our forests again. You know, mm-hmm. it's and, – and I know we're jumping around a little bit, but that when, – when you think of the mistakes that were made in trying to save the American chestnut and then how the white bark was approached, like I kept thinking about all the current that was ripped out <laughs> – and the food source that that was 
to to the native ecosystem. So trying to save one species while kind of disregarding, I, yeah, another. disregarding <laughs> like others, were just mm-hmm. um, I, I'm I'm just, and I know at that time cataloging wasn't you know we didn't know what we were losing at the time but i i wondered just how that alone affected everything else if the removal of that kind of snowballed the effect because there were less things for for other things to to prey on well what's funny is there's plenty of ribes plants around glacier you know we we were not successful at removing them and i mean i can only hope that White bark will be as successful in their rebound from kind of this blight as the ribes plants were from our attack on them. Because I guess I can't say how many there would have been had we not done all this work to eradicate them, but there's no shortage of ribes plants around the forest. So now I have had the the drink that you tried on the podcast. I have actually had that. Because my we have it in our freezer, the concentrate. My my fiance's no from Poland, and that's a very popular part of her culture. So she buys it, and we've had it. Like the first time I had it, same thing. I'm like, it's it's kind of familiar. Like it's kind of great, but not quite. Like I, she was trying to have me guess what it was, mm-hmm. and I yeah. I didn't. <laughs> and if you don't mind, just again, again backing up one step, and why was it? What was the the concept there that they had to remove the the current? to save the white bark pine. What why was that um well basically why did people have to do that? And what time frame was that happening? Right. So this is the first half of the 20th century. It went on for quite a while. Um but the so the white bark pine is threatened by a couple of things. Pine beetles, which are native, which kill a lot of pine trees and sort of a regular disturbance in the forest kind of like fire or landslides. And then they're also threatened. And of course, climate change is exacerbating the impact of the pine beetles. So it's sort of a native threat, but also a bit of a, you know, exacerbated by human impact. Mm. But they're also impacted by blister rust. And here in Glacier, blister rust is the much bigger threat. And the blister rust is a fungus that requires a alternate host to complete its life cycle. And here in Glacier, well, all over, they thought for a long time that Ribes was that single alternate host. And so we now know that there are several other alternate hosts. So um, like Indian paintbrush is a common wildflower that can act as an alternate host. There are a few other ones. But at the time, they thought it was just the Ribes family. Therefore, if you take out the ribes plants, blister rust can't spread and you save the white bark pine. In retrospect, it was not that simple and they weren't actually able to remove all the all the ribes plants. You know, even if 10% remain, they can still propagate and remain on the landscape. But that was the thinking at the time. The with the and I you you kind of touched on this and obviously you go into it in the podcast. It's one thing like everyone is so with with for us with a spotted lanternfly, there's so many invasive insects. You know, we've had Asian longhorn beetle and emerald ash borer and all these things. But the the insect that is attacking it isn't an exotic insect. It's a, a native insect. So mm-hmm. uh, if you could ex- explain to our listeners kind of like how that – so it's not like you, you can't necessarily just get rid of it. It has benefits because it is native, but just how this kind of 
came about. Yeah, so pine beetles, like I said, are a natural disturbance. There's all kinds of insects that attack different trees. And when there's a big insect outbreak, they're kind of cyclical. Um, a lot of mature trees will die. That makes room for new, younger species to come in. And it's kind of a natural disturbance in the forest. And there's a balance. You know, there'll be a big beetle outbreak. Then they'll kind of eat themselves out of house and home and their populations will crash. And with the pine beetles, as climate change has progressed, basically the warmer it gets, kind of the more successful they can be. There's sort of a limiting threshold with these really cold temperatures that will kill the larva at certain stages of their lives. And so as we're seeing those really cold temperatures less and less often, they're able to complete more and more life cycles. So when we do have a beetle outbreak, it's way bigger than it may have been in the past. And with white bark pine, especially, they live at really high elevations and places where it's really cold. So those weren't really places that beetles are very successful because of those cold temperatures. And as those cold temperatures return less and less often, they're more able to move into those white bark pine stands where they hadn't been very successful before. Are, are they still performing their other functions or are they preferring white bark pine? Like, are they like, oh, this new food is much better than what we were doing before? No. So they have had a huge, some of those things where like they've had a huge impact on white bark pine if you're just looking at white bark pine, but it's kind of a drop in the bucket. If you drive around, you know, Colorado, parts of Idaho, they're just swaths, huge hillsides, millions of acres that have been impacted by, um, by pine beetles. And those are, I would guess, mostly lodgepole, not a forest ecologist. Mm -hmm. Don't call me on that, but yeah. I assume it's a lot of lodgepole mm -hmm. and ponderosa pines too. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up that that is they are an important part of that succession process where it's a like fire or storms or, or lightning can kind of be that revert back to the beginning of the cycle. The insects are an important part of that too. And um, is there any is there any concern that because of the climate change uh, allowing more cycles of the the uh, pine beetle to come each year? that they're going to just destroy too many pines and then we'd lose the pine beetle as well? Or are we not thinking about that either? I haven't heard that proposed mm -hmm. by anyone who's kind of an expert in the field. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't imagine us losing yeah. pines. So I can't imagine we'll lose the pine beetle. But, but yeah, their populations do go in these huge outbreaks and, yeah. and huge yeah. crashes. So, you know, and that's why I was saying, yeah. like if, if, if one of their limiting factors was cold, oh yeah, like what they're like, do you know who the the natural predators are for the beetle? I don't. I okay. would guess that birds okay. eat a fair amount of beetles, but yeah, they're kind of their own. Yeah, again, not a forest entomologist. <laughs> no, I. But I think they kind of limit themselves often. Yeah. Okay. They're resource limited, perhaps. Yeah, and that Geologist, I guess that's kind of what I was. What I was thinking a little bit is if, if okay, you end up losing enough, enough pines that you end up losing the beetles, and then what part of the food web that impacts. Yeah. And uh, and that's actually something else that you guys brought up in the um, – just a cool activity you guys brought up that you did in the podcast was uh, the, the food web exercise with the ball of yarn. And mm -hmm. uh, do you mind explaining that a little bit? Sure. So that's something that 
you know, I used to do on junior ranger programs and, and stuff like that. And it's, it explains sort of the, the web of life, if you will, you take a ball of yarn and you pass it around to each student. And basically each student is a species, you know, one kid's a grizzly bear, one kid's a white bark pine, one kid is a cutthroat trout, one kid is a pine beetle maybe, and, or Clark's nutcracker. And so you pass the yarn between each species that's connected to another one, whether they eat it, whether they are eaten by it, whether they rely on it for shelter or some other resource. And so you kind of get this crazy tangled web of yarn crisscrossing all over the circle. And you, everyone is hopelessly tangled and you have everyone hold on to the yarn and like lean back a little bit and they're tiny. So it works and everyone's <laughs> a little skeptical, but they're like, Oh, okay. This, this kind of works. It's holding me up. And then you take your scissors and you snip just one of the threads and it all starts to unravel and everyone yeah. falls on yeah. the ground and, and laughs. Um, but yeah, it kind of shows how all things are connected to all the other things. There's many, you know, quotes we've all heard that um, that kind of describe that. But I think that's an impactful exercise, it and it's one I can visualize. And I hope I can, maybe I can gather up enough kids to do it myself. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, You'll have to have more kids. You, yeah. It's two years old now. Yeah. You, you could have more. But uh, <laughs> no, it's impactful, and it's it really shows how interconnected all of this is, and how going back to what Fran said when we were talking about the ribies, how you're we're sacrificing one thing for another, but it's, you They're don't, all we're not, it's all connected. So we aren't always considering mm-hmm. all the impacts that might, we might be taking through that action. So Definitely. And and I love that it, there's a focus throughout the podcast on coevolutions between plants and animals. And you, uh, is it the Clark's nutcracker um, mm-hmm. uh, with the, the white bark pine? Um, so you mentioned that, the white bark pine is a keystone species. Um, can you just go into this for our listeners? Like, how was it identified that this was a keystone species? And, um, like, how do I identify those and how do we know what we'll lose if we lose that? Yeah. So, a keystone species is, um, again, not a biologist or an ecologist, but uh, sort of insofar as we talked about it on the show, um, a keystone species is a species that is connected to so many other species in the ecosystem provides so many different functions in the ecosystem that without it, everything would crumble. You know, it's like the keystone in the arch that you have to have that wooden support to put all the stones together. But once you take the keystone, put the keystone in, you can take away that support and it'll be freestanding. But if you take out the keystone, it all falls apart. And so you know, like we just talked about, everything is connected and each species is important, but there are some that have an outsized importance, a disproportionate importance in those ecosystems. And white bark pine is one of those. And it's for our listeners too. It's not just in plants. It, it can be anything like if it were the ocean, it would be sharks. Um, if on land, it could be wolves. Uh, right. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a apex predator either. Yeah. Like sea otters are another example, um, like in the kelp forests. It's a beaver sized one that I often hear referred to as a keystone Mm -hmm. species because they manipulate the land in so many ways and destroy habitat for one thing and and create it in another (laughs) way. So, right. So, the, you know, it's, and as the the podcast progresses, it goes about 
about trying to save the white bark pine. Um, and to me, like, and this was a tree that Tom and I were not familiar with, not having been from the area, we're not familiar with it, but it did kind of bear like a minor resemblance to our pitch pine forests uh, here in New Jersey and the pine barrens. And it made me think of, you know, the importance we talk all the time, the importance of fire uh, in these forests and, and how sometimes we, it's a necessary evil, but it, it helps with our reemergence, even, um, like pitch pine in the pine barrens, the the pine cones won't open unless there's fire. Like mm-hmm. they've evolved. Like lodgepole. Yeah, yeah. So it's unless there's fire. Yeah, they there's, rely on it. Yeah. So, um, but we deny this function all the time. So, um, how do we know is too much to intervene when we're trying to do this? How do we know if we're doing too much damage by not intervening, <laughs> or too much damage by intervening too much? Do we even know that? I mean, that's one of the fundamental questions of, <laughs> of our Let's get White Bark Pines story for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And certainly the Park Service has had different philosophies about intervention over time. You know, some of the stories that we talked about, like fish stocking in the past or predator removal in the past, fire suppression, those are all things that we look back on now and are like, oh, well, of course that's a silly thing to do. And kind of one of the unspoken questions or maybe spoken a little bit is sort of, we think we're wiser now, but it's hard to know that. I think we talked with Rosalind Lapeer, who is a um, Blackfeet ethnobotanist and a professor at University of Montana. And she kind of flipped that on its head and she pointed out that the Blackfeet have been manipulating, managing, mm-hmm. intervening on these lands for since time immemorial. You know, they, if they, this plant or that plant was useful to them, they would cultivate it. They would take it with them and plant it in a new place. They would, you know, encourage the species that they relied upon to grow. And so these lands have been managed forever. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of our reaction to some of our more misguided policies over the last hundred years has been to stop intervening, to say, okay, we're not going to do anything. This is going to be a pristine natural laboratory where, you know, people will not intervene at all and it will, nature will be left to its own devices as it should be. But that's kind of a fiction that's only been something we've even considered for the last, you know, maybe 100 or 200 years. And so people have always been a part of this place and always will be. And so it's less a question of should we intervene, but how do we intervene? How do we form a positive, sustainable relationship with these places where where we are a positive part of this ecosystem, not just kind of those scissors sniffing mm-hmm. the yarn left and right? You know, and that leads to how important – you know, it's – as you were saying, like, hey, we're going to have this pristine forest over here, which is kind of silly. It's like saying here's this painting that you can't touch, you can't really look at. Every now and then we'll let you walk by it, um, which is kind of silly. It's like having a park saying you can't go in it. So how important is is human interaction with nature? I mean it's so important. I think – I guess we often think of it in a passive way, like just – walking outside Mm -hmm. makes me feel calm and peaceful. And that's, I mean, I encourage everyone to go outside more often. Um, 
I certainly think that viewing it as a relationship and building those relationships, it's like the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. That's been a huge and fulfilling part of my life as I've built that relationship more. And I certainly think that like foraging is one of the most fulfilling things that I do as part of nature. You know, when I go pick huckleberries, I mean, they're delicious, but it's just, I don't know. It feels very right. It feels like something I should be doing. And I love being able to eat and feed myself with something that grew here and that I picked. And yeah, I think that's, that's one of the most fulfilling things that I do. And that goes, nature. that goes back. Cause I believe that was one of the examples that Rosalind gave with, I think it was a June berry or service berry that they'll, they'll call it mm. on the East coast that they took with them and, and would plant it so that they had it. And yeah. We, Tom had used it in New Jersey. We have a book. It's like a native plant book of New Jersey and it will tell you where every plant, what County and where at. So we were looking at pawpaw trees and it was native all up and down the Delaware River. Mm-hmm. But as Tom – like everyone's like, it's really not native here. It's native south of here. Like why would they say this? Because it was uh, – tra- I heard from uh, from some folks in the Midwest that one of the reasons it was really common along waterways is because Native Americans would go and plant them as potential food sources for hey, – I'm Long trips, yeah. We're going to be uh-huh. around here next September, so we want to make sure there's pawpaws so we have something to eat. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, when we started <laughs> – putting that in context with the the book and it's all oh, it makes sense that uh you'd have pawpaws right along the river because it's a travel corridor and um and that's where they'd want to find food so uh that was just yeah another uh not not dichotomy something that lined yeah. up between yeah. between the your yeah. podcast and something we'd already known so but speaking yeah. of, of pines and and you may not think of it as a food source but it, it gets discussed that it's uh many felt it thought of it as a first food um mm-hmm. um and this you know and and we talked about the loss of chestnut and that was a a, a first food and um you know you you find the difference between I think the white bark pine and the chestnut is we lost a chestnut before we really knew how important it was. We knew but mm-hmm. without really knowing it. So we've had a chance to actually study this and learn how important it is. What what have we learned throughout this process of trying to – examining that we're losing it and then that we need to save it? What have we kind of learned through that process? We asked that question of a lot of people that we talked to and everyone had – kind of different perspectives on it. I think perhaps the one that was most impactful to me and that um, kind of shaped how we put the season together was Kaylin Brennan, who's an interpretive ranger here for a long time. And she did her campfire program on White Park Pine. And her answer to the question, you know, what can we learn from White Park Pine? Her answer was that when people choose to have a positive impact on nature, we can. And yeah, that was something that, again, we kind of grow up with this idea that we're bad for nature and we have to fence off these parks to keep ourselves out of it. But to feel that we can have a positive impact, that we kind of the sense of responsibility, that we need to have a positive impact because we've had a negative impact on a lot of things. And yeah, that we can be stewards of these places and active participants in these places and in the world around us, I think was a very 
kind of powerful idea for me and shifted my thinking on a lot of these things. It's, do you find, are there limitations in how we can help? We, as a former guest, we had Marcus Gray on who was with Sustainable Monarch and Audubon International. I guess one of his concerns was if they had made the monarch butterfly uh, an endangered species, they would lose some of the means that they had to manage the species. Like it would actually hmm. limit them instead of helping save them. Uh, have you found certain limitations that, that you have that you can do to help this? Like is there so much that's just out of your hands? Or um, because what I what I loved hearing was that the Park Service was in touch with the Park Service in Canada and and so many other organizations working hard together to make this happen, which we love to see U.S. Fish and Wildlife and so many other organizations. Have you found any limiting factors that that have prevented good work from being done? Um, I mean, money is always a limiting factor, of course. Like budgets only go so far. Um, Bob Keen is. A, a researcher with the Forest Service, and he's maybe one of the more optimistic people that we talk to. And he said something like, "Give us ten million dollars in ten years, and we can save this tree." And then maybe <laughs> those numbers are are way off, but something like that. Um, and I think other people are probably not that optimistic. You know, Diana Six, who is a professor at University of Montana, she was definitely more concerned with the climate aspect of things. And it's like, that's, you know, that's something that as a society we can probably fix, but that's not something that the white bark pine community can fix. And so, yeah, it's kind of a matter of focusing on what we can and pushing where we can and yeah, taking action where we can. And it is such an interagency story, such an interdisciplinary story and effort. And that's, that was really inspiring for us to see, you know, so often people get very siloed into their discipline and into, you know, our own agencies. And so to see this collaboration between all these federal agencies and state lands and, you know, nonprofits like the White Bar Pine Ecosystem Foundation helps support and coordinate a lot of these efforts and yeah, international working with Canada. It's that's a really positive thing to see. And it was something that we definitely need. It was inspiring to hear. It, it was truly inspiring to hear that. And that's what we love to see. Yeah, and I, I was going to say that we mentioned some of the the past ways that you tried to save white bark pine, but what are some of the things going on now, um, the ways that people are trying to save white bark pine? Yeah, so the restoration program at the moment focuses on, the idea is essentially there are some trees that have some level of natural resistance to the blister rust. And those trees we call plus trees, the sort of mature cone bearing trees that seem unaffected by blister rust when so many others around them have died. And so people go and collect the cones from those trees, the seeds, and then propagate those seeds in nurseries and then plant them back on the landscape sort of trying to specifically help support and propagate the genes from those trees so that we have more rust-resistant trees on the landscape. And then as far as pine beetles go, um, people will go out and um, put little verbenone packets, which is a pheromone that the beetles produce when they've occupied the tree. So if you have that little packet stapled to the tree, it sort of says already occupied, no vacancy, find another tree to any beetles who come along. So those two kind of in tandem are kind of how people are addressing the threat of the rust and the threat of the pine beetles. 
yeah. you know, and, and given that, that's one of the things we talk about is the importance of genetic diversity. If you if you didn't have genetic diversity in those plants, you wouldn't find the plus trees to be able to to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's important to part. You know, we we always have this talk about cultivars and are they evil or are they bad? And they're they're clones, so they are. If if they're susceptible to one thing, they're all going to be susceptible to it. But here, nature's giving itself a chance by actually having things that may evolve to be resistant and and so forth. Yeah, one of the amazing things that Diana Six said was that you know we were sitting on this hillside and in, in the park looking out over this forest. And she said, you know, looking out over these trees that all look the same to me, there's more genetic diversity than if you looked out across, you know, a stadium full of people Mm -hmm. who would look very different to us. And so preserving that genetic diversity and trying, yeah, that's, it's like you said, one of the best hopes, one of the only hopes for white bark pine. And so certainly the, blister rust and the pine needles have created a bit of a genetic bottleneck here. And it's not necessarily guaranteed that the trees that are rust resistant will be most well adapted to a warming climate Mm -hmm. or other conditions they might face. So there are certainly no shortage of challenges in in white bark pine's future, but. And just one thing, if we could explain to the listener too, because we we did talk about masting earlier and that means that well, if you could explain it, like the difference why some years, some like things like oaks or hickories or things that produce a mast, why it varies year to year. Yeah. So like the last last year was a big white bark pine cone year and, and the year before was pretty good too. And the years before, not a lot of cones. And so that's essentially it's strategy to kind of outsmart all the things that would eat its seeds, all the seed predators. And so if they produced the same number of cones every year, the populations of all those things would increase because they have this great food source and they would increase to a point where they're then limited by that resource. It's sort of a bit of an exaggeration because there's lots of other food sources for all these things, but in our, in our example. And so they would eat all the seeds, but if they kind of go in this uneven pattern where they'll have low cone crop, low cone crop, low cone crop, then those animals that eat those seeds can't increase their populations that high because it's not a huge resource for them. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's a huge cone crop, tons of seeds. And of course, those animals are like, amazing. (laughs) So many (laughs) seeds for us to eat, but there's more than they could possibly eat. So some of them will then go on to propagate new white bark pine trees or whatever other fruit trees mm-hmm. or trees with nuts that that do this masting behavior. It's one of the, the more touching parts of this for me was in episode four. It was hard for me not to get emotional hearing you get emotional about talking about this. And it's I think we all kind of forget at some point how resilient nature can be d- d- despite all the things that we've managed to do to it. That it, it always seems to find a way. Um, even I know they're they're starting to reintroduce American chestnut after having crossbred Chinese chestnuts in, and then kind of breeding it back out and looking for resistant ones. And and hopefully we'll see a comeback, you know. And it's and and things just change, like climate change, naturally over time. What does the future hold for the white bark pine? 
I don't know. A lot of people that we talked to had a lot of different answers. I think cautiously optimistic is kind of where I landed. There are a lot of challenges in White Bark Pines future. You know, we talked about um, just the challenges in genetic diversity and kind of this genetic bottleneck that, that they're facing. There's climate change. There will always be pine beetle outbreaks. There are, you know, there's more and more fire that's moving further and further up in elevation into places that didn't used to burn very much. So there's a lot of challenges that they face, but I'm, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that this restoration program will be successful and that we can support these trees and this species to remain on the landscape. I, you know, it's, it's, I I love that there's optimistic yet with a sense of urgency. (laughs) And yeah, but the positive I took away from this, that sometimes you learn from adversity and, and going through this, it was just so touching to see so many people from so many different aspects willing to work together to, to, to get this done and save this for all different reasons. And, and, uh, part of the reason Tom had the idea to save or start this podcast was there's all these great nonprofits that are doing different work, but all for the same reason. And wouldn't it be great if, if mm-hmm. we saw some of these mm-hmm. people or, or bring our listeners to say, look at all this great work, even though you may not be into hunting, this hunting group is doing great work for the ecosystem because of this, because they want a healthy ecosystem so that they can continue to do this. And it was just nice to see so many different aspects come together for this. It's, I feel like the 18th, yeah. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's one of the things that, I mean, that is what made me cry on the podcast is that, you know, just like whether we, whether we do succeed or whether we don't, I, it's just wonderful to see all these people that have shaped their lives around whether it's studying white bark pine, managing white bark pine, working on the restoration program. There's running the white bark pine ecosystem foundation. There's all these passionate advocates and just, yeah, it makes me hopeful for the world that so many people care so much about this tree that lives in the subalpine that so few people even get to see, but it's inspired such devotion from so many of these people. And there's stories like that all over the country and all over the world. And so it's nice to, you know, however the story turns out, I think it speaks well of, of these people. Yeah. And And one of the things that makes it even a little bit more touching in a way is that these are really fairly long lived trees. So, the people who are working on this probably aren't going to see if it was effective or not. Um, yeah, it's a multi-generational effort, and we, we won't really know, well, you we're know? Gonna, we're we're going to have to revisit this in 50 years, yeah. like, like you said yeah. in the podcast. Although I'm the <laughs> oldest one here, so Tom may have to just fill in for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 50 years from now, we would be able to see if the trees we've been planting for the last 20 years or so have if they've matured, if they're bearing cones, mm-hmm. fingers crossed. Yeah, And it, how, since, just since you've published this, this season of the podcast, have you been able to go back and see how some of the plantings have fared since you originally helped plant or, or visited them? So we planted 
um, last fall and we went with Melissa Jenkins at the very end when I planted my own little white bark seedling. Um, and we also tagged along with the park crew that was planting on um, Mount Brown in the park. And those are still covered in snow. So we haven't been okay. back to visit, but I, I would love to go back up and kind of take a look and see how, see how those are doing. Will there ever be a, a plan to like maybe revisit season two in the future? Like if the story continues about how some of the success has gone, like to kind of revisit saying, we got you all emotionally involved in this. <laughs> this is what's happened since then. Yeah. I mean, I could totally see sort of a bonus episode kind of a thing where okay. we kind of check back in. I mean, like you said, though, it's such a long term effort. So to really see and they monitor these plots, you know, there's five year mod. Well, some plots they revisit for the first few years, some they go every five years and there's every 10 year follow up. Um, and so like they did just do last year, I think they did the 20 year monitoring for some of the very first plots of White Park Pine that they wow. that they planted in the park. And so, you know. Maybe it would be five years down the road. We revisit those trees at Big Mountain or something, but it would be, yeah, it's a long, it's a long-term project. So we'll see if our podcast goes, goes on as long as, <laughs> well, as that. But. I would say right, right before we, we started recording, you mentioned that you guys are setting up your studio for season three right now. What is the, the or can you tell us what the topic is for season three and what do you have planned? Sure. Yeah, so we are in production on season three right now, and it'll be a bit of a left turn. We're doing a history season. So season one was an episode about each different area of the park with a few related stories, kind of standalone episodes. Then episode two is this one big story, all interconnected. And so episode or season three will be kind of a bit of a mix. So... It will talk about the early history of this area before and leading up to the formation of the park, kind of looking at art and economics and capitalism and colonialism and sort of creation and destruction and looking at these big themes in relation to um, some stories that we know really well, like Lewis and Clark and the fur trade and the role of the railroads, but kind of trying to find some of those untold stories. That sounds oh, yeah, like yeah. something that we'll both really it's, enjoy. Yeah, it's right on my house. <laughs> and, for, and for our listeners that still haven't li- – like if you didn't pause it and listen to it, we didn't ruin anything for you. Even though you may have listened – just listened to us talk about it for an hour, we didn't ruin anything. There's There is so much fantastic content. We really urge all of you to, to please listen to this because you won't be disappointed. Yeah, and there's definitely some plant content in season one too if you're – once you finish the White Bark Pine story, I would definitely encourage people to check out season one too. There's a uh, a story about foraging for native plants with a an indigenous woman, and there's a story about a the hunt for a rare native gentian. Ooh. So there's awesome. some some plant content cool. in season one too. So I think we'd be remiss if you know we, we're talking about this wonderful podcast and 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 white bark pine but we'd be remiss if we didn't have this wonderful wonderful presence in front of us and we didn't talk about you so are you are you are you ready for this is your life oh boy. <laughs> um, i'm joking we we you know we're we're always curious when we have 
guests that are so passionate and seem like a perfect fit for what they do. How did you kind of find your way? Is this something you always knew that you wanted to be involved with or did you kind of find your path like in a, a winding way to where you're at? I definitely zigzagged a bit. You know, okay. I was not the most outdoorsy kid. I certainly, you know, my parents encouraged me to play outside and that kind of thing. But sometimes I kind of needed a shove out the door. I was a little bit of a homebody, a bookworm. Um, and then in high school, my school had an outdoor program and I had the opportunity to go on a two week backpacking trip near Canyonlands National Park. And that really kind of opened my eyes. Like I was kind of a budding geologist. So I had an interest in kind of understanding the landscape, although I, yeah, the plants, animals, not on my radar at all, but, (laughs) but just that opportunity to be outside and see, see what that felt like, how that affected, you know, the friendships that I formed with people on the trip and how it made me feel, um, was kind of opened that whole door. And so that led to, you know, wanting to get more into outdoor activities and studying abroad in New Zealand and, you know, studying geology and, thinking about how the land around me formed and why it looks the way that it does. And so once I started working for the park service, I, yeah, I became a much more of a naturalist kind of under the tutelage of the people around me. And I, I was always kind of straddling the line between science. Like I loved natural disasters, like (laughs) powerful natural (laughs) phenomena, like earthquakes, volcanoes are what I studied as a geologist. And then working with the park service, I got really interested in fire and fire ecology. I did a project on avalanches. And so that's always what I've been (laughs) most excited about, but I wanted to also unite that with kind of outreach and telling those stories and communicating that to the public. And so when I kind of accidentally fell into science communication. I didn't even know what that was until I started doing it. And then I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is <laughs> all my favorite things, you know, and in contrast to academia where you learn a lot about a very small topic. I love that I get to learn a medium amount about so many different topics. Whether that's by Bark Pine, whether that's these history stories we're researching now, whether that's the avalanche project I did, the fire projects I've done. So that's probably my favorite part about my job. That that pretty much describes Tom and I. I was thinking about it because like, we both crave knowledge. But, you know, I always joke around that I, I know enough about – I'm not an expert on anything, but I know enough about everything to be dangerous. And that's <laughs> – and that's – but that's great when you feel like you're continually getting to learn and it motivates you and it it gets you to keep moving towards that. Yeah, that's my favorite. It's just learning new things. And so to be learning new things all the time and being able to tell those stories so other people can learn about those same things is – yeah, it's just now, great. We're getting to see you do this for our listeners because you won't see this. I, you, you can tell – how in like when it's something you're passionate about how animated you get it like when you started describing the white bark pine to us and and like it, it was a whole different it was a whole different concept and and we could see that when you were explaining why you love doing what you, you do i definitely have a geologist <laughs> habit of talking with my hands and describing <laughs> things and acting them out here's a, a, another um i'm trying to find a way to answer ask this question the right way but 
if if we had to visit one park in like Montana or in that area, or should we go to Glacier or do we go to Yellowstone? Well, Yellowstone has had some floods recently. Oh, I, I yeah, I know it's closed out. right now. Yeah, <laughs> so that's probably Glacier. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, of course, like home team, got to say Glacier. But honestly, kind of like I said before, one of the fun things about the podcast was getting to explore all these different places around the Flathead Valley and kind of realizing that, you know, we've designated these, this and that land as these crown jewel national Mm -hmm. parks. But like there are these incredible places wherever you go, you know, whether it's national forest land, whether it's state parks, local parks, there's so many different places that you can go and just be in these incredible landscapes and get to know the flora and the fauna. It's yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of places you can go. I don't know if Tom knows this story, but I've been to Yellowstone. Do you know this? I don't think so. I've been to Yellowstone, but I had won a trip to the Marlboro Ranch. Now I'm not a smoker. But I want a trip to the Marlboro <laughs> Ranch. <laughs> so um, there were heavy rain it was in Montana, and there were heavy rains before we got there. So a lot of the activities we had pre-booked to do were canceled. It was like mountain biking and zip lining. So one of the the, the last-minute tr- activities they put together was a trip to Yellowstone, a private guided tour of Yellowstone. And no one went. There were four of us on the bus, and we spent all day there with a forest ecologist and a geologist and wow. they drove us through Yellowstone. So it was like a private – it really was. And then the next day, we raved about it so much, they they were turning people away the next day. There were so many people on the bus. But we just had this like great experience because mm-hmm. there was just a handful of us, and they had the time to spend with us. So we were just asking a million questions and just kind of I mean, honestly, probably one. the most amazing place to visit, at least probably in my opinion, is the one you can like learn the most about. Mm-hmm. Like all these places are beautiful, but – for me, you know, when I go with someone knowledgeable or a guide or something and I can ask all those questions and they can tell me all those things where, you know, I just walk down a trail. I'm like, well, I guess this is beautiful. <laughs> but to learn, you know, this is what these plants are and how they're connected to these other things. And these are the birds that you're seeing and hearing and how they interact with these and how the way that this valley was shaped affects the what plants grow where. Like, yeah. Now, have you I had think. people come to Glacier looking for white bark pine now? After the podcast? Maybe. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I I would love The podcast to... hasn't been out for that long, and okay. we just got back for our summer seasons. But definitely throughout last year, as people listened to season one, like we'd interact with them mm-hmm. or out and about in the park. And so that was pretty cool. I'm... Yeah, we only got back and started our season a few weeks ago, but I'm hoping I'll have some interactions like that. I would. There's love- actually someone that recognized Michael just by his voice. Really? Yeah. When yeah, like people would come up to him at his evening program, or he was working at like the we have this uh, reservation system to get into the park, and he was staffing one of the stations, and he said, "Hi, welcome to Glacier. Do you have your reservation?" And someone was like. <gasps> are you Michael from the podcast? <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping that as we, it, it's yeah, still early season, but I'm hoping as we get out, out and about more in the park, we'll get to hear about more people coming to see white park pine. My idea, I'm just going to throw this at you. You can use it or not, but if you do a bonus episode, I would love you to start it with the survey that you start season one with asking people if they know what a white bark pine is and just mm-hmm. see if there's a difference in, in results. 
I would love that. I would love that too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, certainly there's a lot of the staff that, you know, we talk to and see every day have listened and that's always gratifying to hear. But yeah, I would love to see some park visitors. Awesome. And it's in the podcast because we're assuming that this has inspired people. And speaking of inspiring people, who inspires you? Who who do you look up to or as you got into this, who is your is there any immediate inspiration that you can think of? I mean, certainly kind of what we talked about earlier, just the dedication of all these people working to save my bark pine was just really wonderful to get to be a small part of and to get to learn from those people and, and tell their story was, yeah, really kind of filled my cup. I, and I, I have to ask this only because you on the podcast say one of Tom's favorite quotes, which is an Aldo Leopold quote. Do you have a favorite Aldo Leopold quote? I love the one from episode five about, um, actually had it written down here. It's, Acts of creation are ordinarily reserved for gods and poets, but humbler folk may circumvent this restriction if they know how. To plant a pine, for example, one need be neither god nor poet, one need only own a shovel. That, <laughs> I just that. like that it's, it kind of, it gives you a little bit of agency. It speaks to the meaningfulness of planting a tree or a plant and of growing things and of being part of part of the natural world instead of separate from it. It's a big theme of the show. And yeah, it's a it's reminder a of mine. It's a reminder that you can make a difference. Yeah. You, you just have to want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just mm -hmm. have to want yeah. to. So my, my last question that I can think of is what do all the hosts of uh, the Headwaters podcast, what do your day-to-day -day jobs look like? Are you out and about like you kind of mentioned a little bit, or are you planning for, for future seasons? It's definitely a mix. So we are working on season three and that's probably our biggest project, but we also are working on, um, we do, we also do all the exhibits in the park, like the wayside exhibits that you see as you drive around and stop at a pullout on the side of the road. So we've got some of those to work on. We do photography, we do social media. So got a lot of different things, but it is nice to have a mix of kind of our our desk rangering <laughs> with <laughs> also being able to get out in the field and whether that's taking photos, whether that's getting field tape for the show, it's a nice mix. Oh, that's awesome. So speaking of all the things that we talked about, our, we're assuming that our listeners are going to want to help or get involved. How, how can our listeners get involved? Well, there's a lot of wonderful organizations that do – work around White Bark Pine and a lot of those we talk to in the show. Um, I definitely can't list them all now, but if people, well, I hope you check out the show and if they look at the show notes that has, they list each episode lists kind of who we spoke with and the people that kind of supported us and the organizations that, that supported us throughout. Um, but I don't know. I just think more broadly, yeah, I would encourage people to build their own relationships with nature and cultivate those relationships, whether that's getting out and planting native plants or learning to bird. That was a huge thing for me that's been just, yeah, a big addition to my life. And or, yeah. Or going to visit a national park. It, it was yeah. <laughs> visiting national parks and, and also, you know, I 
national parks are great kind of introductions to spectacular nature, but I also hope that they're kind of a gateway for people to, to start, yeah, cultivating their own relationships with the natural world and kind of recognizing that it's great to come visit these crown jewel national parks, but it's going to be a short visit probably. And everyone's not going to visit every year, but there's so much nature that you can recognize and appreciate and learn about in your own backyard. And for me, like going birding every week and listening and hearing the species around me every day is such a meaningful activity. And yeah, I don't want to say it's more meaningful than like a once in a lifetime visit to a national park because that's also incredible. But yeah, it's something, it's not like a special occasion. It's a constant in my life. So I would... I would encourage people to build that sort of relationship. One of the things I always do when I go to a state park or a national park is I try to make it a point to at least talk to one ranger because besides the story of a plant or or something else, I enjoy the story of the ranger themselves. And, and uh, when you hear the passion and how long they've done it and, and some of the things that they've worked through, to me sometimes that story is just as, just as good. So, and I've had some great conversations uh, – when I was at Saratoga uh, Spa Park in New York, I had a wonderful uh, conversation with a ranger uh, to where I almost I, I spent more time talking than I did actually looking, <laughs> looking through the park. But uh, that was the, just because they complimented your shirt, though, wasn't it? No, that, that was, was somewhere else. Place, that was somewhere else. Yeah, that was a different. Actually, I didn't even talk to that person. They just kind of get like nice shirt. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> so, but it's uh no that the that the passion definitely shows, and that's important, and it's all part of the story, and and you can't help but yeah. to appreciate that. Yeah, and just like learning about the places when you visit, I always do my junior ranger book when I go to a national mm-hmm. park because you know you have to learn a few things. They ask you to go to a ranger program, you have to stop by the visitor center, chat with the ranger. It's a great way to kind of get to know a place. Awesome. Very cool. So we do you have any other questions no, before? I'm, I'm, All right. So we, we always end with the same question and it, it never changes. Well, actually it does change because <laughs> sometimes we've asked entomologists what their favorite insect is, but it's it's along the same line. But we always ask what your favorite native plant is. It's a very simple question, but a lot of times it ends up being the hardest question. And since you're a geologist, you could add in your favorite rock. Yeah, rock formation. <laughs> <laughs> Probably easier to choose my favorite native plant than my favorite rock. <laughs> I feel like I, I I feel like I should know what the answer to this is going to be, but I could be wrong. I'm I'm waiting to be surprised. I mean, it would be really easy to say white bark pine. Yes. I I don't know. I talked a bit about how much I love foraging. I might have to say the huckleberry. Oh, very nice. Like I did get to eat one white bark pine seed, so in a way, we kind of have that relationship too. Okay. But Huckleberries are a big part of my life, so awesome. I'd probably say huckleberries. Very good. That's a great yeah. choice. I don't think anyone has ever said that no. before. So um, we always – I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? No. I feel like I'm cutting Tom off because I'm being he, a little Because he does a lot. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not this time. We're like an old married couple. Um, the we After that question, we always kind of end with final thoughts, and this is where we – kind of hand the floor over to you and and you can use the time however you want just to summarize promote something however you'd like to use it the floor is yours and and well i definitely encourage everyone to listen to headwaters um it's glacier national parks podcast you can find it wherever you get your podcasts or on the parks website 
And there's two seasons out so far. Season two is the White Bark Pine story that we kind of focused on today, but I definitely encourage everyone to check out season one. It's sort of an introduction to Glacier and keep an eye out for season three, which will come out probably this winter or spring. We're in production for it right now. And yeah, I definitely want to shout out the Glacier National Park Conservancy too, because they uh, funded the show and we couldn't do it without them. And if you don't mind me asking, what, what was the inspiration for the name of the podcast? Well, so Glacier is unique in that it has a triple divide Mm -hmm. in the park. So if you stand on this one peak in the park, one side goes to Hudson Bay, one side goes to the Mississippi River, and one side goes to the Pacific Ocean. Wow. And so that's kind of a, a unique thing. It's the headwaters of all of those rivers and streams. And so, yeah, the headwaters, yeah, it's kind of the origin but also where things flow out from there and go to so many different places. And so we've kind of thought the same way about the show is that, you know, Glacier is kind of the focal point and the origin for the stories that we investigate, but we've also loved where they've taken us outside the park Mm -hmm. and the kind of rabbit holes and (laughs) branching stories that they've taken us along. So that's awesome. That is awesome. Tom, would you like to go or would you like me to go? Um, I'm going to let you go. So, my my final thought is going to be brief, which is very rarely is. Um, the the I, I think sometimes the best way of getting involved is just being aware, and uh, knowledge is power. So, getting to listen to such wonderful podcasts such as Headwaters is a great way of being aware and and getting involved. And it doesn't hurt to keep learning. The more you learn, the more you'll want to do, or the more it will inspire you. And and that's all that we can hope for. With there you go. Yeah. Mine was going to be simple, too. Is I really enjoyed this podcast a lot because, um, like I mentioned in the beginning, it's about a native plant and the plight of that native plant in a way, but it's also about the culture and the history and what we've done about it and what we're doing about it now and the mistakes we've made along the way. And it's uh, it's just there's so many parallels, no matter where you're from, of what's going on with the plants around you there and, and similar things that are happening in parks or with NRCS or, or different conservation services. Um, and Glacier's always a place I wanted to go. So and me too. Gave a little bit more, One day. <laughs> more interest in <laughs> Well, we'd love to have you. So. Awesome. Book it. Cool. Book it. Awesome. So, yeah, so that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Perry Sasnet. Uh, for more information, you can visit. Fran, you didn't give me a No, because I wasn't URL. sure what to put in. I, you, can, you, you can listen to Headwaters yeah. anywhere you listen to podcasts. Anywhere, anywhere you, you listen to podcasts. And, uh, and the uh, URL for their, their podcast is uh, mps.gov slash GLAC for Glacier, uh, just short for Glacier, slash learn, slash uh, photos multimedia slash headwaters dash podcast dot htm <laughs> probably easier just to find it so uh thank you everyone for listening to native plants healthy planet presented by pilots nursery uh we would love to say thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music theme uh, i i just had a 
my brain theme just went. Music. Theme music, yeah. yeah. Uh, it just, it was, I was saying it, but it didn't sound right. <laughs> I, I was saying the right thing. Uh, make sure you stream or buy uh, their music wherever you consume your music. Uh, if you want to see them live, uh, live music is back. So make sure you, uh, they're always playing in the uh, Manny Young uh, section of Philadelphia. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or uh, Wow, native plants underscore healthy planet uh, or YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz, and we will answer it to the best of our ability. And uh, we just want to say thank you to all the new members of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, the conversations have been wonderful. There. Yeah, a lot of good discussions happening over there. Um, you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch directly at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Uh, we just announced last week who our, our next donation is going to because we don't take a dime from the, the sales of the T-shirts. And we make nothing cases. down. We take, well, I guess we take all that money and then we give it to someone who we feel is deserving that's working with native plants. Uh, and we just announced last episode that we're going to be giving that to Bowman's Hill. Bowman's Hill Wildflower Preserve. Um, now, one of the stipulations we just talked about with Santino is we're going to actually extend their window a little bit here uh, until, what was it? July July 17th, I think. Se- yeah. So, so they have another month, month from, yeah. from today. So any... T-shirt sale in that next month outside of the ones that go to the Xerxes Society or New Jersey Audubon are going to go to Bowman's Hill Wildflower Flower Preserve. So if you're a big fan of Bowman's Hill Wildflower, Wildflower Preserve. You still have time to help. Yeah, time to help, yeah. You get to spread a great message, wear a great T-shirt with a great message, and the money goes to so, a great cause. Fran, I know you wanted me to chime in on that, so I just did. I, I did want you to. In done. the email thread, you wanted to chime oh, in. Oh, I did, but, I but you I did. did <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you can also listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast at that same URL. But realistically, you're going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, you can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Um, when you're there, if at all possible, uh, and you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. And if you do a little write-up with that, uh, I'll give you a shout-out on our Buzz episode. So, awesome. Uh, with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Perry, thank you so much for joining us today. This was everything Thanks we hoped so much for. for having me. Oh, anytime. Uh, coming up next week, we have a Buzz episode, so make sure you tune in for that. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.